0: Hello and welcome. Today we're going to be discussing something that has been a cause of controversy over the past few weeks and more generally over a number of the past years, which is the subject of empathy and to discuss this with me today I have Joe Rigney and Hannah Anderson, two friends of mine who have thought very carefully and written Um, very perceptively about this issue, but come from different perspectives. So I thought it would be helpful to spend some time teasing out some of the differences that there are, some of the reasons why we're discussing this particular issue, and maybe some ways forward for the debate. So both sides can take on concerns of the other, understand where we're coming from, and hopefully by the end of this conversation, we will have broken some of our differences down to size. So first of all, Joe, you've been a lightning rod for controversy on this particular issue. Uh can you give us a sense of what has sparked this debate and um your role within it and the different um, objections that you have faced
1: yeah thanks i'm glad to be here talking with you guys um so uh a number of years ago um i got uh through the writings of someone like an edwin friedman um and paul bloom and um various other sort of things i started thinking more carefully about the whole question of empathy uh, and then at some point I want to say it's about two, two or three years ago. Um, this is sort of my, my entry into the conversation, um, wrote a couple of articles for desiring God, and then also did, um, an interview with Doug Wilson, um, which was provocatively titled the sin of empathy. And then I would say over the last, I think that re- the, the video came out, I want to say in t- fall of 2019. And since then, I don't know, every couple of months, somebody watches it and, uh, and then and then I get um, emails or, or you know tagged in, in Twitter conversations uh, and so um, but I, but I've tried to lay out kind of various issues and challenges I've got as we as we think through the, the question of empathy uh, the question of how do we help the hurting and, and so forth um, in recent days I would say the spark uh, has been that James White you um, uh, kind of picked up the, the similar kind of language of distinguishing empathy and sympathy, sympathy being a good thing and empathy being a bad thing. And that kind of lit up a whole bunch of different places, but then that then led back to some of the things I've written or some of the things that that Doug Wilson's written. And it kind of spread out from there and became a, what in the world, why are we talking about this sort of thing? Uh, and, and so then that there's been now lots of conversations, I think online and in various capacities about, um, uh, the, the subject of empathy and particularly the claim that empathy is, is sinful or sin, the sin of empathy, that kind of phrase. And uh, and if I were to kind of break it down in terms of what I think is happening as I've engaged on it, um, I think there are some substantive issues involved about uh, dynamics, relational dynamics, um, helping dynamics, counseling dynamics, um, uh, social dynamics, all of those sort of like substantive issues. And those are real, whatever you call them. And then alongside that, then there's this semantic issue. So there's a substantive issue, there's a semantic issue, which has to do with what do you call that and, and how do we relate different terms like empathy, sympathy, compassion, and so forth. Um, so there's a semantic issue. Um, I think there's a, an audience issue or an emphasis issue. So you know, who, to whom are we talking? Um, how is it being heard? What relevant backgrounds and different contexts are in play? Um, And then there's a rhetorical thing that's really emerged, at least in my own mind, um, that people have pushed most heavily on me, I think, who there's there's folks who acknowledge, yeah, maybe you have a point, but to say something inflammatory, like the sin of empathy, to use that as a kind of, um, they would, you know, the the accusation is a clickbaity kind of title is um, bad as a rhetorical move. And so there's a question about sort of the legitimacy of provocation in a conversation like this. So substantive semantic sort of audience and rhetoric, I think all of those are in play, um, which makes it super hard to sort of untangle, especially on Twitter. So that's that's my sort of state of the affairs, um, but I'd, I'd be interested to hear from Hannah how, how she kind of um, sort of entered into the discussion. We had a nice interchange on online the other day, um, but kind of as, as she sort of saw it happen, what did she think was happening and, and so forth.
2: Right, and, and I would, um line up with everything you've laid out as far as defining the timeline and where people were entering at different points and what they were carrying into that. Um, I actually, when when we started conversation last week, I was um, interacting, and I didn't say this explicitly, so no one would have had that knowledge, but I was interacting more with the um, provocative nature of James White's tweets. And then because of the phrase, the sin of empathy, and because of the framing of empathy versus sympathy, that I think got backloaded onto your work. And um, it was understood within the larger conversation that this can all be just collapsed together. Um, I was particularly engaging with that kind of provocative um, sympathy is good, empathy is sin, like explicit, like empathy as a category is sinful. Um, And I think somewhere along the line, somebody tagged you in that thread. And so it did kind of come packaged in a way that wasn't necessarily helpful for um, discussion. Although I would like to congratulate us on working as well as we could through it, uh, despite all of the, um, you know, can the, the context. The thing that's interesting to me entering this conversation is um, I'm aware of Brown's work, Brownie Brown's work. I'm aware of the cute little video of the woodland creatures, you know, helping each other out. Um, I have seen it more in spaces with friends or people I'm working with that they have a strong affinity to this kind of framing. But my, my um, kind of engagement with empathy has come through neurodiversity questions, um, through autism spectrum related um, issues that we face in our own family that I face in my extended family. And so when I see like the language of empathy and sympathy, I'm coming with like, oh, okay, let's talk about this. And then I find like, you know, Alistair has mentioned this before that Actually, people are, are talking about a whole lot of different things within this space and, and trying to even define what do we mean when we're using this term? Like, what is that carrying? What are we actually debating? What are we actually questioning? Um, I think has been has made the conversation difficult. I do think like um, for me coming from spaces of neurology and neurodiversity, one thing that's been really, really beneficial about coming into the conversation from that aspect is it's really a lot less about emotions um, when I engage with the idea of empathy. And, And I would wonder, like one of the questions I have, I'd like to explore is to what degree are we using the language of empathy for something else that's mm-hmm. happening like maybe we're, we're letting that word do too many things and maybe defining more clearly what we're actually concerned about um, mm-hmm. would be helpful in terms of moving the conversation forward
0: i think following on from some of those remarks i noted at least five or six different conversations that seem to be coming into collision at this point. There's this one term that's very load-bearing for several conversations of empathy. If you look at Brené Brown's work, it's very important alongside other key terms like vulnerability or shame. And those terms carry a lot of significance within that system, which has been very helpful for many people. And so to have a, a challenge upon that term is something that will at least disorient people who think in terms of that system. How do you fit in that challenge with the genuine insights and benefits that people have had from her work? Alternatively, there's the work of someone like Paul Bloom, who challenges empathy. And again, he has a sort of stipulated definition that not everyone will accept. You mentioned, Hannah, the context of neurodiversity conversations where, again, it has a more clinical definition. If you're talking about Edwin Friedman. his work on leadership. It's another definition he's working in terms of. If you're talking about the um, Christian tradition, you've got a different set of ways of talking about these things in terms of compassion, for instance, or if you're talking about maybe someone like Aquinas or um, Augustine and the relationship between reason and, and the passions and these sorts of things are coming into the conversation. So first of all, do either of you have any thoughts on how we have conversations between these conversations without just butting our heads off each other. If, have you found helpful ways to talk between these different frameworks without collapsing them into each other and causing confusion?
1: That's a great, that's a great question. I, I, think, I think you laid out really nicely there the, the different conversations more broadly. Um, but I think probably the biggest confusion that I see in in that Is precisely that on the one hand you you very clearly have multiple conversations with various definitions of the same term, and it's a recent term in English, right? It's about a hundred years old, Um, and its and its definition from when it was first introduced introduced in terms of art, it was a about art appreciation and those sorts of things um, has changed markedly um, over the years, and and so there's this sort of newer term with changing definition even in its short history that then is involved and has sort of settled into very distinct conversations with very distinct maybe not very distinct but at least moderately distinct definitions so you got that but then on the on the other hand the 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 most common pushback i've got from a lot of people is kind of the knee-jerk reaction of everybody knows what we mean by empathy and I, and I want to sit there and I go, well, I don't think that's true at all because when I say, okay, well, what is, what what do we all mean? Um, I'll either get quoted like Merriam-Webster's dictionary will get quoted at me, as though that settled the matter, um, or I find that you do get sort of different definitions. Somebody's going to quote a more sort of cognitive, um, you know, uh, and, and sometimes drawing on the, the neurodiversity sort of questions about what empathy is doing, and then for other peoples, it's it's simply a word for emotion sharing and particularly emotion sharing with um, hurting people um, often. And then, so you find very quickly that on the one hand, everybody knows what we mean. And yet it's quite clear there's contested definitions. And so the only way that I felt that we have to do, what we have to do in a situation like that is, is stipulated definitions. So say specifically, what do you mean by the term? And then what do you want to do with what you mean? Um, but because of that contested space, especially in the wild west of the internet, um, people are going to push back and say, you're not allowed to stipulate that definition. You're you're redefining the term as opposed to going with the actual definition that, quote unquote, we all know. Uh, And so that makes it particularly hard and is why choosing your conversation partners wisely becomes really important if we're actually going to try to get into the substance of whatever conversation, whether it's the the Friedman anxiety conversation, social dynamics, or the Paul Bloom, how do we help people in a sort of rational, reasoned way, or the neurodiversity question about um, how do we cultivate in people who may have challenges um, with uh, interacting and relating with other people and reading, reading emotions off the face and so forth. Like those are different conversations. You have to stipulate definitions and choose your partners wisely.
2: I, I do think there, um, the, the definitional quality is a flashpoint. Um, absolutely agree with that. I do think everyone just naturally carries in their assumptions, um, even when you stipulate definitions. Um, I think perhaps one of the challenges that I've found in the conversation is I see the language of empathy. I, I see um, like perhaps a an illustration or an example or this is what could happen when empathy becomes toxic and mm-hmm. and i look at that and i would say i would never call that empathy i would never call that toxic empathy like like there's a terminology for for what you're describing is a true real thing but like another term comes to mind immediately like the loss of boundaries or the loss of self or the kind of collapsing a uh, personhood into another person mm-hmm. um, you know i would say oh that's enmeshment. That, so, so I think part of the challenge is while I like fully say, yes, you're describing something real. Yep. Empathy is not necessarily my, my sense of, yeah, that's what, that's what's in play there. Um, and, and I'm not saying that that's, um, you can't use that term. I just think you have more work to do to mm-hmm. prove that that's where it's coming from um, rather than, Uh, this other category that's already established for people that they do know. So that's part of the challenge too.
0: One thing you mentioned, Joe, and I think is behind a lot of this, is the fact we're having this conversation in the context of the internet, um, where there are a lot of different people in very different contexts, and a word online is speaking across all those different contexts without discriminating well between them. Mm -hmm. Um, how, uh, one of the things I've wondered about recently is the way in which the internet seems to serve almost as a sorting device for sensibilities, where people with different sorts of sensibilities and personality types tend to move increasingly into different ideologies. Mm-hmm. And people can be squeezed out of particular movements when one sensibility takes over an ideology or a movement or a particular denomination, whatever it is. And I think, seeing some of that here, that what empathy names is not just a particular idea or an emotion, it's a a deep sensibility for many people. It's how you treat other people who are immediately around you in your space. And people are hearing within that some of the conflicts between the very aggressive, for instance, um, pugnacious types that you encounter online, who see it very much as a context for um, debates and arguments between different positions and those who see it as a space where people are very vulnerable and you need to be accepting and affirming of people and try and establish as much as possible some sort of emotional resonance between people and is there any way that we can tease away the conversation from those issues of sensibility because i i think there's something different going on there than the sort of moral conversation that you're having about empathy more generally i think Any healthy system should be able to and movement should be able to accommodate people with very different sensibilities without suggesting that one of those things is bad, but it seems that the empathy conversation has tended to produce divisions along lines of sensibilities. Is there any way that you see us moving beyond that to have a conversation that brings people of different sensibilities on the same page?
1: Well, I, I think to Hannah's point there at the at the end of, of her comments about um, the, the you know we, we have words for the, the dynamic you're describing, Joe. Why not just use that one? Um, I'm I, personally um, I don't want to wrangle about words. I don't you know. So <clears throat> the substantive issue is the thing I'm mainly concerned about. And when I've I've <clears throat> written on it and and written sometimes criticizing those dynamics under the term empathy and could, I think, explain and justify why I would do that. And yet at the same time have done the exact same descriptive um, critical work without using the word empathy at all, um, talking more about compassion or love for the hurting and the, and the same sorts of um, destructive dynamics that can be in play in, without using that word empathy. So I don't want to wrangle about words. And if it's really um, a semantic issue, I think that mature... Christians, that's an important qualifier, mature conversation partners, whether they're Christians or not, ought to be able to go, oh, okay, this is a semantic problem. And semantic problems are, are, are a thing, and they might be important, um, but it ought to place the the debate in a very different context than if we're actually differ, differing on the fundamental substantive goodness of the dynamics in play. Um, so, So I think at one level to to cut through the collision of different conversations online, you have to be willing, um, to acknowledge that the terms can be used in these different ways and that that's okay, Like that that's, that's just where we, that's a, that's a descriptive fact. And then instead of, um, trying to force everybody must say it the way I say it, um, it's when that sort, of that, that sort of dynamic comes into play that I think we ought to say, no, no, you don't get to do that. You don't get to just come in and say, this is the only term, way that this term can be used. And to the degree that that's what people are doing, um, well, that's not what I'm doing. And, and I'd resist it and say, no, that's, um, that's illegitimate. Uh, that language doesn't work that way. Conversations don't work that way, especially given the different um, communities in view and the discourses in view and the sensibilities in view, all of those, we ought to be patient and, and slow. Um, you know, actually when analogies occurred to me, um, I've always find it fascinating that, you know, they tried to carry out early Trinitarian debates, you know, um, across an empire, uh, in multiple languages at the same time. And, and you notice when you read someone like Augustine or some of these other guys where they're saying, you know, the Greeks use this term, but the Latins use this term. And, And the mature ones in that conversation aren't getting hung up on, are you going to call it the Greek term or the Latin term? Or do the Greek terms and Latin terms sync up precisely right um, in other contexts? But they're trying to say, can we press through that to the the substance of what we want to talk about um, and recognize the different grammars that might be in play for it? And I, I suspect that on an issue like this, a similar kind of maturity and sober mindedness is needed in order to make any kind of progress. You do talk about the and difference
0: I, I, between the substantive and the rhetorical dimensions, but it seems to me on this particular issue that those things do get blurred. Um, the idea of um, the problem the problems of empathy, I think encourage a certain type of um provocation for some people, a more um, aggressive confrontational attitude. do you Do you really think that we can tease apart the substantive and the rhetorical dimensions? as neatly as you suppose, or have said.
1: Um, yeah. So <clears throat> tease them apart at some level on this particular show, I'm not sure because um, you know, the number of, the number of people who have communicated to me based on what I've written and said, boy, the way people are reacting, they're kind of proving your point. So that there's a way in which the provocative term, and this is, this is part of what Friedman is doing in his work is saying that um, the, the, um, the hijacking of communities and conversations by the most reactive and immature members of a community is a big problem. It's a major problem in modern culture and the internet is like an amplification machine for that dynamic. The most sensitive, reactive, immature, or sometimes um, the most, the advocates for those who are perceived to be sensitive or victims or whatever can be the most reactive and then, and therefore you get the mob sort of mentality. And empathy is one of the things that kind of sets that off because of the sensibility sorting that you described, Alistair. And so there's a way in which provoking the reaction is precisely a way of demonstrating the problem. So when people have said, why did, why did you do it? Why did you say sin of empathy is sort of the, the title of your interview? And, I, and it's, you, were, you were just being provocative. And it's like, I was being provocative. That was, that was the point. Um, and in some, I was trying to provoke thought in the same way that, a, that you know, Don Carson writes a book titled um, The Intolerance of Tolerance. that's made, supposed to make you go, oh, what's that about? Um, but, but thought-provoking isn't the only kind of provoking. There's reaction-provoking, and reaction-provoking has its uses <clears throat> too. So, and the reaction-provoking might actually provoke thought in other people who all of a sudden might be alert to dynamics that they didn't have language for that they didn't, ha- they didn't know what to call it or what was happening, why their community was being sort of ripped apart in various ways. And all of a sudden they go, oh, now I see it more clearly. Um, so I think personally that there's a place for that kind of provocation, but I think it ought to be accompanied by um, a willingness to be patient, long-suffering, clarifying in the aftermath so that, that you're, not, um, you're not just throwing bombs and then walking out of the room, but that there's a, there's a willingness to say, I knew what I was doing, and I'm trying to make a very important point about one particular issue here, um, but I'm not insisting that this is the only way you need to talk or this is the only way that you need to do it. But I, I, I would wanna say it is a legitimate, not the only, but a legitimate rhetorical strategy in in the conversation.
2: If I could um, just back up to the question of substance versus terminology, I, I hear the um, appeal and i very much, um, Sympathetic to it. Um, But I I wonder what has thrown me in this conversation is that there seems to be a lot being built on the difference of words and definitions. So, So at the same time that we're saying, well, let's look at the substance of the problem and let, you know, it doesn't matter what word we use. There are parts of the argument that the entire foundation for the argument between something like sympathy and empathy is based on word choice. And so that can be very confusing to say in one respect, this nuance is massive. You know, The difference between these two words is the, the difference between, as you know, James White put it, you know, godliness and sinfulness. So then to move to say, but it's really the substance of the debate that I'm concerned about. Um, as an interlocutor, that's very confusing to me to say words matter, really, really matter, but they don't really matter when we're just talking about the substance. Um, so so I, I have found that divide between that, that kind of dichotomy between sympathy and empathy to be, to be honest, I think a more Christian way of engaging that is to say the world is dividing these two things and they shouldn't be divided. Like we're gonna reject the paradigm that's being delivered to us the way it's been framed. So so you're absolutely right that there is this kind of narrative more broadly and pop psychology that empathy is the better virtue. Um, but then to just flip that and say, well, sympathy is actually the better virtue. Um, to me seems like accepting a false paradigm and then operating within it. And I would think that maybe, our Christian imagination would give us a way to, to deconstruct what needs to be deconstructed, but to build an entirely different way of talking about these things. Um, so I do think the terminology is not insignificant because the, the argument is built on the terminology.
1: Which, which and, and I think it, it is important to stress though, that the, the dichotomization of those was not something that, either me or James white. And I'm not sure that he and I are doing precisely the same thing or would, or would align in terms of, um, the, the substance on the issues. Um, I think Doug and I are, are, aligned, even if rhetorical strategies even may differ there some. Um, but, but the, the dichotomizing was something that sort of happened independently of us and was already in play, right? It, that that's the Brene Brown sort of, sort of stuff, yes. which is, yes. which is highly mm-hmm. influential. And, um, and so there was two things happening there. One is what you're pointing out, which is there was a, a separation or a dichotomization where, where um, sympathy is now a bad thing. It breeds disconnection, mm-hmm. um, it, it divides people. And what's interesting there is that as, that as that sort of teaching worked its way into the church, I've seen that video in church training sorts of settings. Um, and as sort of like a, hey, this is what we need to do. Um, there was no outrage over why are we saying bad things about sympathy? Mm -hmm. as a bio, you know, like nobody, nobody rose up in defense of, uh, of sympathy, um, which was being, you know, attacked and assaulted as this, Mm -hmm. you know, um, insufficient and, and poorly done, um, strategy for, for care. Um, but that, that dichotomy was being introduced. So on the one hand, you have the, the, the language confusion or the conceptual confusion. And then the flips the, the, the additional thing there though, was in the description of empathy itself as the more loving and helpful response is, uh, is a falsehood about it's really important when you're trying to get in the pit with someone that you withhold judgment. That, mm-hmm. that judgment is ruled out. That's a to 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 bring judgment into the conversation is an unloving, uncaring response. And I think as Christians we ought to just reject that wholesale. But we we aren't like that's the the reality is is that the um, the idea that you that that someone's feelings and pain are sort of unquestionable that you can't even ask questions about, is this a, an appropriate or proper response, even internally, right? That, that the sort of the demand, um, which isn't a new demand, this is as old as dirt, that people, when they're in pain, want other people to join them in their, in their suffering wholesale. If, if it's a, a grievance of some kind, somebody's wronged me, you need to be on my side. Um, that's it's old. a loyalty. That's,
2: it, it's it, like, like, I, I see what you're describing there. I mean, I absolutely understand the uh, false paradigm of this kind of forced loyalty and side-taking. And and we see that everywhere. And the degree to which uh, the terminology of empathy is being used to, to bring that in, you know, to suitcase it in, I, I'm very much, um, you know, I'm sympathetic to that. I, I'm just, I find it... Um, I find it difficult to say, okay, here's what Brenae Brown is doing, and here's all the way this is flawed. Well, we're just going to flip that, and we're going to argue why sympathy, you know, because you can keep one foot on truth and on shore, because there is the 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 conversation as it's been framed hinges heavily on a distinction between those two, and, and my sense is that distinction did not originate in the church, Right. that it did not originate in our spaces. It, that distinction originated. Um, in you know kind of pop psychology categories, and I'm like, why not both? Like, why can't we clarify the proper relationship between sympathy and empathy? Why can't we give better definitions? Um, and again, some of this is coming in to uh, I come in with with the background of neurodiversity, and I see this moment being brought to us not necessarily by the emergence of a new term but a new type of social dysfunction and i see this entire conversation being brought to us by uh, the fragmentation of human relationships because of modernity so <laughs> i mean one yeah. of the things
0: that one of the things that i think is going on here is that people come into the conversation with a different sense of where this is playing out and many people have been deeply wounded by the church in um, their past and they experience a sense of judgment and alienation from the church and the church instantly leadership can as they see it take an instant posture of judgment upon others without actually entering into their situation and helping them to work out how to inhabit in a healthy and righteous way the framework of orthodoxy so one of the ways I've tried to think about this is there's a difference between orthodoxy as a house that is orthodox and it's established according to the proper theological architecture and it's going to stand etc there's a very great difference between that and making that structure your home and for many people they found the structure of orthodoxy to be quite inhospitable they've not actually been led in a pastoral way to inhabit it in a way that is a home for them it's been something that has come with an experience of trauma, alienation, whatever. And so when people hear this conversation about empathy, what they're hearing is a reinforcement of the lack of pastoral sensitivity that they've experienced in their past and the ways in which the church has been a place where their position has not really been understood and there's not even been an effort to try and understand it. Mm -hmm. And so this instinctive posture of judgment, let's get the lines drawn very clearly. And that's the way that we're going to respond to every situation. They see the empathy conversation as um, expressing the dangers of empathy as reinforcing that rather than actually challenging something that's led to a collapse of trust between many congregants and their pastors. How, how would you speak to that particular concern because it seems to me that that's one of the things that is very um strong in driving this particular um response to your term
1: yeah i mean i i think um uh that's a that is a real um challenge problem phenomenon like it it's really there and uh and so th- the question is whether or not the um, importing, building a different structure, sort of in a, we're, we're using Brene Brown, I think here as a, as a sort of cipher representative of a larger way of operating in the modern, in the contemporary context, um, where empathy is sort of seen as the supreme virtue, which is something that, you know, Friedman was pointing out 20 years ago, that um, that was already current, that, that what leaders need most is empathy, what leaders need most is empathy. And Friedman was the one waving the banner saying, I'm not sure that that's actually going to, do what you think it's going to do. There's, there's something else under, under the surface there. But, but given that that's a real problem, the question is, is empathy is the insistence on empathy as sort of a cardinal virtue, Um, which is, I think what's, what is why it's there. Part of what the reaction is that you've said, like people then given their negative experiences, harmful experiences in a church context, find solace in other communities um, even within the broader church where empathy is sort of elevated and then therefore empathy becomes sort of an unassailable, unalloyed virtue. And I want to say, well, I want, I want the care. I want Christ-like compassion and care for sufferers. But then the other side of the coin is sort of that we live in a moment where um, people's feelings, and that's a, a a slippery word in itself, right? Um, People's emotions, people's passions, part of our challenges are, are, um, the, the vocabulary loss in relation to that sort of phenomenon, whatever we mean when we say feelings and emotions, um, that people's feelings and passions are, are, um, elevated as, as, as God, right. Which so, um, um, and, and then empathy is, I think used can be used as a way of getting other people's feelings to be God. So other people's feelings become God. and, 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 uh, and so there's, you're, you're f- trying to fight on two very different fronts there. One is we haven't cared well for real sufferers and instead of judged them harshly or tried to correct their theology in the moment of pain, and we've driven them away. And I want to slap that down, um, and have, I mean, I've, i you know, when I, one of the things, when I first started to write on this, um, and was talking it through with some, some friends and said, I, I want to go after this, this empathy thing, what I think is hiding under there and what that is. Um, and they said, "Well, first, what's the other danger? <laughs> like, what's the, what is that? What is that a reaction to?" And so we talked that through, and 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 had some of the conversations about correction. You know, um, correction disguised as comfort. So when someone's in the middle of their their pain, and and someone comes along and says, "Well, God works all things together for good," and it's like that's that's true, and this isn't the time necessarily for that sort of correction disguised as comfort. And so their recommendation, which I thought was wise, was first hit that, go, go ahead and, and direct some fire at that problem of, um, uncompassionate compassion or correcting compassion or whatever you would want to call it. And then having done that, then take up the, the danger that you really want to talk about in the, in the present moment, which is the empathy thing. So I did that. Um, but the interesting thing about the reaction is nobody reacted against the first, Even though I was describing all things work together for good, that statement as a demonic strategy (laughs) um, in certain contexts, nobody objected. Why are you putting all things work together for good in the mouth of the demons? Um, And the reason I think is because everybody recognized that was a problem. Everybody's experienced that everybody knows that's a problem. But what I don't think people are sufficiently well, maybe aware they of, didn't read the article and just read but, uh, that's a true particular line from it. <laughs> that, that, that's 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 also that's also fair. Um, but I I think even I could get up and describe that problem, um, and uh, and I think I could even do it as a you know the sin of truth telling, and and talk about sort of speaking the truth but not in love and and the way that that happens. And I think I'd get lots of amens and nods because people would know I've seen that and that is a problem and we know what you're doing rhetorically. Um, or, uh, I had a, I had a student who pointed out this example, which I thought was very astute. Um, and he said, uh, when, when someone, if someone were to write about the sin of anger, all of us wreck it would, would go, we would nod. It wouldn't raise any eyebrows because we know that implicit there is sort of sin of unholy anger, because we know that anger isn't always sinful, um, or hatred would be another example. Hatred's not always sinful. If we said the sin of hatred, people would know it. Um, but empathy which is also, I think, a passion, at least at some level in, in this conversation is, is a passion, that emotion sharing thing, which to Hannah's point about different contexts, right? But for many people, it's, it's, a, it's a passion. And therefore, um, but, but the sin of empathy is the sort of thing that if you said people don't get it at all, because I don't think they can recognize and imagine such a good thing being such a bad thing. And, and that's a problem. Uh, so you're, so to to circle back, you're trying to fight on two different fronts and usually it's different people trying to fight on different fronts. So certain people are going to be more alert to one danger and certain other people are going to be more alert to another danger. And this is why pressing through the substance is important to say, oh good, you're, you're really hitting that one hard. I just want to say amen to your desire to care well for sufferers and so forth, and I would like very much for you to be able to say amen to, hey, let's not make feelings into God.
2: You know, the question that that raises for me is, who who is this conversation directed toward? Um, Because how we go about framing things is related to who we're talking to, so I I understand how the, the internet can take something and just you know, grant access to everyone coming from all their different positions. And you can in no way write toward the masses. You have to write toward specific people. So I'm curious who you're writing to.
1: Um, well, so, you know, initially, so if I, if I was talking about um, the, the writing aspects of it, um, obviously I wrote those articles for Desiring God and therefore have a particular sort of mm-hmm. audience in mind, which is sort of the general Desiring God, the reformed evangelical, you um, Audience that that likes Piper in general, like that, that sort of thing. Um, when I did the the video, obviously that was with Doug, and it, it was called Man Rampant was the, the name of the show, um, and and obviously the, the the direction of the conversation is it's an interview, um, it's a, a kind of an academic stipulated definitions, um, you know, kind of fun sort of sort of thing, um, but directed towards. I would say particularly sort of men's concerns or something like that. Like this is, this is directed at men. Now, of course it's not going to stay there. And, and I think one of the ironic things I've actually had somebody tell me that one of, one of a critic at one point said that they got together a bunch of um, sort of uh, abuse survivors um, to watch the, to watch the man rampant thing. And, and then they were all appalled by it. And, and I just thought, and you think that's my fault? Like, like that, that you think that was my fault that you got together a bunch of abuse survivors to watch a video called man rampant and the sin of empathy. Um, because, and and this is to your point, like you can't, I don't know, I guess my my question back at some level is, is there any way to sort of isolate audiences today? Or do you just have to live with the fact that you can try to speak very particularly to a particular audience? Mm -hmm. Um, and yet no, you have to know it's not gonna stay there. And if it, and once it jumps into the other, other audience it's gonna provoke whatever reaction it's gonna provoke. And you have to sort of be content to take the heat and try to patiently clarify um, across those discourses.
2: I hear that. And, and I guess my, my one kind of like just quizzical pushback is when I think of the spaces you're writing toward and I think of the conversation being directed toward men I don't think they're the ones that stereotypically need to be challenged about being too empathetic. Um, so when I think of the people who succumb to this temptation, it is women in these spaces who lose their identity in Christ because it has been absorbed into their children or it has been absorbed into their husband. I mean, I have seen that in a discipleship frame within conservative spaces. And it's why I wrote Made For More, because what I saw happening in women was a complete, not complete, that's, that's an yeah. exaggeration. There was a significant loss of self. Mm-hmm. And I, in my own mothering, have had to say, wait, <laughs> I'm the person, I'm the mother, I am the one that must lead, I must create space between this. And so I think part of what's curious to me is if this is your defined group that rhetorically they might need something else. Like men who are already stereotypically as class traits not prone this direction. Don't need to be told don't go this direction. You know. Well, uh, th- that that was a challenge for me watching. Yeah. It. I wasn't challenged by myself watching it feeling like but I was thinking in terms of a pastor, and I'm like, "Hmm, is this what he needs to hear?"
1: So, and and I think to that, this is where um, the sort of Friedman background, which is mm. part of what we talked about, obviously in the in the video, becomes into play because that's Friedman's whole, uh, con, you know, uh, entry into the conversation is directed at leaders, and therefore, as thinking about men in the church as leaders, pastors, and, and so forth. Um, the ways in which, uh, empathy becomes a mask for anxiety. And in a Christian context, I think that's particularly acute. I think in, in certain circles, um, it's, uh, I think it's a particular danger. So I I see the, um, the temptation of, um, pastors having no way to deal with people who say I'm hurt. Therefore you sinned. I'm hurt. Therefore you sinned," and they're wanting to go, but, but I'm not sure that, that that a, that's that logic doesn't work straight across. I'm hurt. Therefore you yeah. may have sinned. works. And, and yet then there's a, there's a wider community dynamic in play that says, if you try to hear both sides or look at both sides or investigate or ask questions or, or push or, or resist at all, then you're being heartless. You're not caring. Well, you're, you're re-traumatizing. And in the present moment, I think that's a very timely word to say it's not don't care for the those who are really suffering and those who have really been wronged it's you have to be able to maintain a certain kind of self differentiation you have to maintain a certain mm-hmm. kind of integrity in your own self in order to be able to act sober mindedly and rightly so in some ways pushing on and and even though men and like you said men and women tend to have you know, women tend to be more empathetic and my friend Abigail Dodds has written very compellingly on, on part of why, by God's design, that is the case. Um, she's got a great article called, I think, mm-hmm. the, the Beauty and the Abuse of Empathy, and, and does a great job. And actually, I think, gets into some of the neurodiversity stuff that, that you mentioned earlier, Hannah, um, about why women tend to be more empathetic and men not. But there's also the reality that men tend to, um, men don't handle female distress well.
2: So, so this is really significant because I heard the conversations being gendered. Mm -hmm. The examples were about how men should relate to women Mm -hmm. about a husband to a wife and a pastor to an abuse survivor that I would consider, I would assume, you know, was a woman. And that was unsettling. And and I don't mean that in an emotional way. I mean that in a rational way. I mean that in a moral way. Um, I, I will go with you in terms of empathy is a terrible basis on which to make moral decisions. Empathy should not be used for moral reasoning. Absolutely. Because I don't think that's what empathy has been given to us to do. And insofar as the world is saying to make judgments or to withhold judgment based on empathy, I would absolutely say 100% empathy is not the basis of moral reasoning or moral decision-making. And as a leader, you must be able to make decisions in a way that is not based simply in empathy. I was struggling with. So, so here is how I understand empathy. It is the ability to form communion. Healthy empathy is the ability to form union and relationship and attachment and bonding with other people. And that's why unhealthy or toxic empathy becomes a meshment, becomes a boundaries issue, a self-issue. So I hear us talking about emotions, and I keep thinking to myself, no, this is fundamentally a question of self. This is fundamentally a question of individual versus communion. This is fundamentally a question of unity and union. Empathy is the neurologically, this is the way we bond with other human beings. It's a social skill. It's a socialization. And when it's absent, it's very clearly absent and we can see, we can see the loss of that. So when I hear it reduced in conversations between genders about how men feel like women are imposing their emotions on them, I, I just, it drives, I, I want to lose my mind. Okay. Not my emotions. I want to lose my mind. Um, because I'm like, that's not what's going on. We're, we're talking about union. And, and we need to give a pathway to pastors to, s- I, I also wanna affirm having been married to a pastor for 15 years or t- 20 years, he's only been in ministry for 15 years. Pastors lose their sense of self with their congregations very, very quickly. They take on too much, they lose their sense of self and that harms them and it harms their congregation. That is absolutely something they need to be taught in. But I really, don't understand why it's about how to relate to your wife and how to relate to the the abuse survivor that comes in and talks to you to me that's a totally different category that's not empathy that's not a question of empathy
0: well but 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 i well i've i've struggled to it seems to me that the issues that are coming up here um i've imagined a very different sort of context within which these things are applying and I often wonder at many points I see Brandy Brown's points and I think well within the right context I'm all in favor of that I think there is a time to suspend judgment that's not a total suspension of judgment it's not a denial of a place for judgment it's saying within this particular context that's not the way that you need to lead you need to get into that person's position and help them work the their way out of their problem with your judgment active but not that's not what you're going to use as the tool within this situation it doesn't mean that you're a prisoner of your empathy that's the only mode that you can operate with it's part of your repertoire and it's the thing that you need at this particular point in this particular situation and the gender dynamics I think are very much a hidden part of this conversation because if you're reading Friedman's work It's written for someone, I I don't think it's written for someone who's primarily ordered towards empathy in that basic emotional mode. It's written for someone who's leading and sees people who operate within that more empathetic mode. And their claims upon him or her are ones that he doesn't really, he or she doesn't really know how to deal with those. It's not his primary mode. And then the question then becomes, how do you create boundaries when you can't you feel this sense of duty towards this person and you feel that you could easily get sucked into them how do you establish a, a boundary that's healthy there and so his work is very much about the context of leadership that is very much looking outwards establishing boundaries between inside outside this is me this is you and this is the space between us whereas Bernie Brown is working within a very different sort of context I think and If you're dealing with a kid, for instance, you will need a lot of empathy. It's not the only thing that you'll need, but you will need to be actually step into their position of pain and be with them there for a while and help to shepherd them out of it. But in the same way, a pastor, I think if a pastor can't enter into something of the pain of a congregant and be present with them in it, it's going to be very difficult for him to exercise that other important function of setting clear boundaries Mm -hmm. and I think it's the interplay of those two things that has it seems to me that that's got lost somewhere in the conversation that there are gender dynamics here because we lead with different aspects I think for um, a woman there is a lot more emphasis upon the union and the communion as something that really is important but for a man I think maybe more a sense of having to deal with the claims of empathy upon you and actually keeping a strong sense of this is the direction that needs to be taken but recognizing you need the empathy there if you don't have some ability to enter into someone's pain to see where they're coming from to see where the impasse might be for them you're not actually going to be able to bring them towards what is good and Friedman's work I found incredibly helpful in speaking to some of the the struggles of dealing with a very empathetic context when you're not naturally oriented that way. And on the other hand, Brenny Brown's work, I think, is incredibly helpful in learning how to overcome some of your natural um, standoffishness or whatever it is, and to be able to enter into a situation that actually has traction with people and is able to move them forward without sacrificing the interests of healthy boundaries for you and the group that Friedman's concerned with. And
1: I want, why not both, Joe? <laughs> I, mean, I think it is both. And I, I mean, I think, uh, so one of the, one of the interesting things is that, that happened, um, as a result of mid rampant is that obviously there was a, a fairly strong reaction in certain quarters, um, including in my own, my own context, you know, my church wider church community here. And, uh, and, but the, and the reaction was pretty stark, both directions so i had multiple people both men and women coming and saying man that was really helpful you put your finger on some things that i'd been trying to wrestle through and and hadn't known how to talk about it you gave me that was really helpful giving categories and whatever else and then of course there's other people who were who had a similar reaction uh to to hannah's just about well look at all the examples you're using and so forth um and and then even stronger reactions than that that were far more um I don't know, reactive, weren't weren't simply a a sort of um, reflective, deliberative sort of thing. Um, And then, so, and I hadn't rewatched it. Obviously I did the thing and no one wants to watch themselves Mm -hmm. on on TV. That's just weird. So, uh, so I hadn't rewatched it. So when it reemerged again, I don't know, a few months ago, I finally went back and and rewatched the whole thing. Um, sort of expecting on my own part to kind of cringe based on the negative reactions that I'd sort of been heard over time, and when I went back and watched it, uh, I found myself again and again going, "Oh, we we did say that. We we did say it's really important to you know in the moment of of the suffering, you, you don't say anything. You don't need to say anything. It's just tears and cry. Like you don't have to. You're not correcting anybody. Um, and so and so all of the sort of qualifications about the necessity to." Um, the necessity of entering into the pain of others to walk alongside them in suffering. We just, Doug and I were simply saying the word for that, we think is the better word is, is compassion or, or, uh, or sympathy. Um, that's the word we, we, we wanted to use for that is coming alongside someone in their suffering and pain, um, walking with them as long as it takes. Um, but we were waving the flag for, but reserving the right to maintain an allegiance to God and an independence of mind and a sober mindedness to assess what's actually good for them here. And so when I watched it again, I, I was actually, um, I guess, pleasantly surprised about how many of those sort of statements are there. And so the interesting thing to me has been the divide. Um, and, and oftentimes, my, my again, my experience in, in the reactions has been those who um, agreed with it in substance, even if they didn't like some of the framing or, or the, the rhetoric or sort of, sort of stuff, but they got the point, were able to sort of repeat back to me, this is what you were wanting to do. Whereas it's, it's frequently been the case that the critics have tried to impute a sort of position that wasn't in the video and certainly isn't in the wider body of work. Um, and that's been to me illuminating because it felt, it feels like it is more about some kind of sensibility and the, and sort of the way that it's heard, uh, and and I, only thing I know to do in the face of that is to continue to try to find other words to describe the same thing and not get hung up on you have to say it the way that I
2: say it. But at some degree, though, at some at some level, the illustration. I mean, it's a form and function question. So, so I don't think it's simply um, illustrations are neutral, like. the context in which you place the discussion is instructive and it teaches Mm -hmm. and it teaches something. So, so my question is why those illustrations? Why that? Yeah. Like, like, is there this threat that women's emotions are going to overcome men? (laughs) And and I want to say this because you need to know this about me as well. In my relationship, I am the less effective one. I am the less emotive one. My husband is deeply creative, deeply emotive. And sometimes I am just like, I'm standing there trying to figure out what's happening right now, you know? <laughs> so so I, I'm sensitive to, I, I am female, but I don't exist in class traits. I'm atypical and I'm fine with that. And I know that and I recognize that. At the same time, I do a lot of work discipling women. And so I I know how they act as classes. And I feel like I stand in this bridge between men and women and trying to explain the other to the other. Mm -hmm. And, and so I'm not, I'm not like reading into, you have this agenda, right? Or there's this deeper thing. I like literally don't understand why this conversation takes that shape.
1: Yeah, but so um, one of one of the, the stories I think we tell in the video, which and it, it, this is relevant in terms of how part of what made me more sensitive to it was, is the story. I think it's about um, the bachelor party where everybody's going around and giving advice to the um, to the to the groom, and one guy says to him, "You know, in marriage, um, it's gonna it's gonna be the case that you're going you and your wife are gonna get in some conflict." And sometimes you're going to sin against her. And when you do, you should, um, you should repent quickly and clearly and sincerely and make it right. You should be the first leading in there. Um, but there are gonna be other times where you don't think you sinned against her, but she's still upset. And in such cases, you should never apologize to your wife. And I remember the first time I think, I think it was Doug on his, on his blog or someplace, maybe as a sermon or something, use that story. And I remember the gut check that I feel, I still feel it, um, mm-hmm. of, um, if you, if your wife's upset with you, but you before God don't think you sinned, never apologize to your wife, do not apologize. And I remember going like, no, you're not allowed to do that.
2: Yeah. But that's not empathy. That's not living with understanding. Like I no. totally would say that same thing. And well, and Nathan but, will tell you, he'll laugh at me because I won't apologize if I didn't do something wrong. Like I will literally just say to him, I'm not saying I'm wrong because I didn't do anything wrong.
1: So, but, so but but that's so the, something
2: the, different. Well, right? no,
1: I, I don't think so, because I think what the, the, the socialization piece of this then, is, which is where the social dynamics come into play, is that um, s- servant leadership, sacrificial leadership, Christ-like leadership in the home, the way that that's often framed and pushed is that you would, in fact, put push a husband, even though you don't think you did something wrong, the, she's more valuable, she's more important, her feelings are more important than you sort of insisting on your own way. And it would be couched in those kind of terms because her and, and I think many godly husbands, which is part of who our target was in this, right. um, are very sensitive to the distress of their wife. And if, and they don't, they don't like it. It's very uncomfortable. They, they don't like it when their wives are unhappy with them. And so it's very difficult to maintain the kind of uh, emotional integrity to to resist, especially if you're in a community context where the pressure is going to be put on, like, but, come but, on, just just make it. And and so this is where the um, apologies is appeasement, right? Just come together, and and you see that. And so using that illustration in the home is that's a universal thing. I th- right? I, no, I, no,
2: I I hear the pressure to appease. Absolutely. I, I guess I'm saying. a a wife can be emotionally upset and it not be the husband's fault and her emotions be valid because conflict isn't necessarily rooted in sin all the time. Sometimes it's miscommunication. Sometimes it's a, a misplaced sense of priorities or what needs to happen next. And so I would completely agree. Don't apologize if you haven't in because that's like a lie. Like confessing to something you haven't done is a lie. But to say my wife is upset and I'm just dis- disturbed by that, you should be disturbed by that.
1: Totally. You I should I agree. be.
2: And, and so like to me this falls under the category of live with understanding. And the understanding is, I'm going to try to figure out and understand why, what is causing this emotional response from you. We're not going to be guided by the emotional response. It's not our GPS. It doesn't tell us what to do. We're not going to make moral decisions based on the emotions, but the emotions are, are signals. There are turn signals and we have to pay attention to that. And so like, that's what strikes me as like, you don't want husbands You want to tell husbands, do not sin by taking on guilt that is not yours. Do not lie against the truth in this way. But your wife's emotions are not a threat to you. They're not. They're a gift.
0: It seems to me that one of the things behind this conversation is there's, there's something of a difference between... Um, empathy is an instinctive mode that someone has, and the sort of sensitivity that I think that Friedman is really challenging. So his work, I don't think, is primarily directed to people who feel a pronounced sense of empathy themselves. Rather, it's to people that really feel this responsibility Mm. to be sensitive. And I think that's a particular issue for many church leaders at the moment, where a lot of debates hang upon this requirement to be sensitive and the Mm -hmm. raising up of certain victim groups or something like that and the need to be sensitive is something that makes it very difficult to hold a hard line on certain issues I think sexual ethics being a great example of this in the past few decades the how do you show a proper sensitivity and concern for people and love for people while also being very clear on these are the boundaries and we're not going to budge or um, blur these boundaries. These really matter. These are a matter of Christian orthodoxy. And that, I think, is where Friedman is getting at. This isn't primarily about instinctive modes, which nor is it about the way that the broader way that you can relate to a person within that fundamental structure. There can be a lot of room for the sort of empathetic relationship that Brené Brown's talking about. But I think this is part of the area where people are talking at cross purposes. Mm. One thing I found interesting is the way that people talk about the importance of empathy, but they apply it very selectively. <laughs> so for instance, let's take situations from the past couple of days with the way that people r- respond to any suggestion of reading into a shooter's um, situation, the struggles that he might be experiencing, etc. Empathy cannot be applied there, nor should you empathize with certain um, groups more generally in society. There can be a, a quite a strong resistance to the idea of empathy applied towards certain people or certain classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's almost as if the lack of judgment within typical empathy means that you need to select very carefully who you're going to show empathy to mm-hmm. in the first place. And it, it seems to me we need to get at some descriptive account of how what is called empathy is a functioning within our society. And how as Christians, we can take what's good about that and also identify what's wrong with it, what's dangerous and damaging and present some better alternative. Um, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this,
1: Hannah. I
2: I think that's the way forward is to recognize Um, there is a way to understand that does not mean affirmation. Okay. And, And so when I think of empathy in a very clinical sense, and again, cross purposes, but I think this illuminates where we are in this cultural moment. It is primarily about your ability to recognize and interpret another person's emotions and to recognize and interpret your own emotions. So it is not about judge. you know, it's not about accepting them. It's not about affirming them. It is simply the skill because it gets, because it's lacking, it gets taken down to bare bones. It is simply the skill to know, to know why that person is doing what they're doing what they're potentially thinking, is, it's a theory of mind to be able to imagine the mind of another person. Um, and when I see it explained that way, I think this is absolutely what we need. We need the ability to understand without having to affirm, sure. to, to be able to not just be beside, but like I now know rationally what you are thinking and why this happened or, or what your actions are doing. And I find in my parenting with my son, I act as the bridge because my, my son is neurodiverse. My husband's neurotypical, the two of them. And I, part of what I do is say to my husband, this is what my son's thinking This is why he responded to you this way. This is his logic. And to me, that's empathy. It's the capacity to understand while not saying this is okay, because there's still a lot of behavioral kind of rebellious Mm -hmm. in nature, right? So, So I wonder if the way forward is to be able to say to the groups that you're not allowed to give empathy to, It's because, as Alistair said, it comes with affirmation. It comes with acceptance of the emotion, the acceptance of the thought process. And I think what we really need for connection and union within this moment is the ability to know and understand and recognize what another person is doing and why they're doing it.
1: Hannah, to that point, I think I, I 100% agree, and I think that it's interesting to me that you used over and over again in that description the word understand, because that's precisely the word that I think we—that's the word I would want to lean on, and I think it's the biblical word for it. When when you think about, I had um, having a conversation about this with someone, um, uh, and he he pointed out you know, sort of live with your wife in an understanding way. That you're talking about that, yes. which doesn't imply that you think your wife is right about everything or whatnot, but, but that there's an attempt to sort of approximate, and it's only an approximation because I'm a man and therefore engage with the world as a man, and she's a woman and so forth, but, but that there is, there, there's not a big sort of wall of separation that prohibits me from attempting to understand from her vantage what just happened and why the way the world is, and that that's an obligation on Christians. And so I think that, but, but the, and, and it's not simply a cognitive thing, It involves the imagination. It involves at some level, the emotions and sort of a phenomenological, like, what does it, what is it like to be that person Mm -hmm. recognizing it's only an approximation because Mm -hmm. otherwise we fall into a projection where Mm -hmm. I'm projecting what I would feel (laughs) into that situation and attributing it to them. But what's interesting is that you insisted there on, doesn't it, it doesn't carry with it affirmation. But, but that's precisely, I think, the way that in the wider cultural moment, it, it does carry with it the wider, aff- that, that mm-hmm. affirmation is essential. And to Alistair's point about, um, you know, these are, the, these are the studies that come out these days, which show up in Vox or, or whatever as sort of this anomaly, like, whoa, highly empathetic people also tend to be highly polarized and tribal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and part of what, you know, in, in talking about the sin of empathy or the dangers of empathy or, or, or whatever um, it's trying to put our finger on what what's going on there. And it and it's not I don't think a mystery to say we're finite creatures. And therefore, to the degree that we're going to enter in, it's going to be selective. This is one of Paul Bloom's major points in his work on the against empathy is that empathy is highly selective. Mm-hmm. And they're going to do it with
2: one person at a time.
1: Exactly. And, mm-hmm. and one of the and again, this is where um, on the rhetorical side of things, um, it's it's been fascinating to me watch on the one hand people strongly react to my criticism of empathy, and then I've seen some of those same critics turn around and say write, write articles or or write very critically about evangelicals empathizing with Ravi Zacharias, mm-hmm. right? And I and I want to say exactly I hundred percent agree that that's a place where when you see someone when when the, the Ravi story breaks and. Pastor's instinctive, or, or and it's not, it wasn't universal, it wasn't at all that way. But when some are sort of saying, Oh, but and trying to sort of understand him, that was sort of anathema bad at all levels. And I want to say that shouldn't be your first reaction at all, be precisely for the reason that empathy is um, not but a I universal think, good.
2: Yeah, but I think that um, illuminates another challenge it, on what basis is your understanding being built? And I think in a lot of places, our understanding of what another person is experiencing or thinking or doing is being built on our own uh, emotions and our own sense of what would happen or how I would perceive myself in that moment. And that's not empathy either. Like that, that's a very self-referential and I'm not sure that we can escape that other than by questions and asking and clarifying and letting this other person tell me, like you explain what's going on inside of you so that I can understand it. Because otherwise I'm just relying on my internal resources to make a judgment or to to come to Mm -hmm. some understanding of what's going on inside of you. So so I think this is also something that we have to actively pull out of each other and be Mm -hmm. willing to say, explain it to me. I don't know what your experience is like.
0: I think that's one of the things that has been an important part of the conversation that has maybe not come to the surface, but, the way in which to maintain a sense of otherness between the person that you're showing compassion to. Um, so first of all, you're not projecting onto them. Mm-hmm. And also, you're not just doing this by virtue of affiliation, because you can always see yourself in people who are like you. The challenge is relating to the feelings and with understanding of someone who's very different from you. So you give the example, Hannah, of dealing with someone who is neuroatypical. And that is a challenge that pushes you outside of your instinctive mode. And I think there's more of a moral character to that than just the instinctive affiliation with people who are like us, which can often be very dangerous, particularly in a context where, for instance, racial divides, things like that, Mm -hmm. where you naturally can affiliate more with people who are like you, who go to the same church as you do, who are living in the same community, whatever it is. And there, I think maybe what we're looking for is that ability to actually connect with people without dispensing with judgment, without projecting onto people, without being very selective in the people that we are able to reach out to in that way, but to expand our capacity to relate to people, whether through you know, talking with Karen Swallow Prior recently about the importance of reading good novels that push you beyond your instinctive um, associations and the people that you'd naturally affiliate with and the ability of that to serve a moral purpose you can think about the work of Harriet Beecher Stowe and others like that that gave people or Charles Dickens that gave people a sense of what it was like to be someone experiencing great oppression within their social systems Mm -hmm. and the ability of that to provoke people to take compassionate action and I think compassion here I, I found it a helpful term to lean upon in thinking about something that retains that otherness, because it is something that requires that movement of action. But it's not terminating on the self. And I think empathy can often be about assuaging our own feelings. It's one of the reasons why empathy can often drive arguments, for instance, for, um, for killing unborn, unborn Down's children um, in the womb, because you feel something that's alienating about their experience in the world, and there's no sense of that person's life can have value as that life. It may not be something that I see myself in, but that is something that we should treasure and protect and honor. And there, I think, the same instinct in assisted suicide, other things like that. So much of the instinct there, I think, by not being able to draw that distant distance, it ends up being terminated upon ourselves. So when we're showing charity, it's about, feeling better about myself, feeling no longer guilty. And that's not quite the same thing as actually moving out in charity to someone else and wanting to um, make things better for them. So just to wrap up, um, I'll be interested to hear your thoughts on this before we
1: conclude. I, I just, I think that, Alisha, your point there at the end about the, the difference between sort of a, the instinctive empathy or empathy as a sort of instinctive reaction, and sort of therefore under the category of passions. And then Hannah, I think this is probably coming from your the neurodiversity sort of discussion of empathy as a learned skill that involves understanding what it's like to be someone else or to to put yourself into their their position and understand what it looks like, but without necessarily affirming it. I think that sort of distinction, and and this is part of what you know, the, we, circling back to the beginning the word empathy seems to be used to apply to both of those phenomenon, which are not the same phenomenon. And then therefore, if you're wanting to criticize the the first one and the dangers of the first one for leaders or the dangers for, of the first one for communities, when that becomes ascendant, to, to, to try to do that because it goes under that name of empathy, um, but without sort of implying that the second understanding Um, and the imaginative work of understanding what it's like to be someone else, that that's a good thing that we ought to not just sort of, that doesn't just happen for some, Um, it needs to be taught and, and it's a, it's a skill to cultivate. That's, that's the diff, that's the difficulty that we're facing. And my hope is that, you know, um, it's, it is possible for a conversation like this to be illuminating for people precisely because it's making those kind of distinctions, Um, and, and saying, here's the danger we need to be afraid of. And it goes under the name empathy. And here's the good thing we need to cultivate also goes under the name empathy. Um, and and that's where I would wanna kind of continue to push people in in the midst of the conversation.
2: Yeah, and I don't think it's going away. And um, this would be the, the only thing I would add is I, I think a lot of this is rooted in the fact that socialization and bonding and attachment in our time has fallen on the individual. It Mm -hmm. used to be distributed through institutions. It used to be distributed through the infrastructure of society. And as that has fragmented, the ability to do this kind of work has separated those who can do it well and those who can't, because not because there's anything wrong with being able to do it well or not do it well, but that the shape of society has demanded it of us, not mm-hmm. just because of progressive kind of movement, but because we are so alienated from each other by the shape, by the loss of, of you know, just community. We are, mm-hmm. we are alienated from each other. And so to be able to help people cultivate this skill, I do think is, and, and be aware of the way it will be um, perverted, and become toxic. Um, it is the need of this moment because of the way we have been fragmented and isolated from each other. Um, so, so it is maybe, maybe your bomb worked and got everybody talking.
0: So. We'll see. I think th- those final remarks really resonate with me. Hannah, I think there's a great sense of vulnerability that people have simply because they don't have contexts of formation. They feel very isolated, they feel fragilized. And so within these broader contexts of social media, they need some sense of affirmation and belonging and presence of others with them. But in a healthy society, Those things are provided in a great many different contexts that allow for a realm of judgment to exist without it intruding upon that realm of communion that can exist Mm -hmm. alongside it. And I wonder whether much of what we need to do here is to consider how we create spaces that that enable us to engage in the integrity of relationship, but also in the judgment that needs to take place and the difference that needs to be maintained between people. Joe and Hannah, thank you so much for joining me. This has been a long conversation, but I hope it's been as illuminating for the listeners as it has been for me.